Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. Israel demands a king. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turn aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and the olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
And when Samuel heard all these words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. Each week we remember that even though the grass withers and that the flowers fade, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, just thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that you have preserved it for us and that we have a copy of it, Lord, and so many of them. And Lord, as we open it this morning, just pray that uh, I may not be a hindrance, Lord, that you may speak uh, forth uh, truth from your word and that you would uh, just create in us, Lord, attentive hearts to hear that. You're so easily distracted and, and swayed by the things of this earth, Lord, and the pleasures of it. And help us to focus upon you. Lord, we just thank you for uh, your Holy Spirit, Lord. We just thank you for uh, your redeeming love, Lord. All this we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. As we start this morning, I have a question for you. Do you consider yourselves different than those you are around each day? Why is it that, for the most part, we're not willing to stand out and be different? Every couple of years, Ligonier Ministries comes out with a couple of questions. It's called the State of Theology. And there are very, some very disturbing trends amongst professing evangelical Christians. These changes are at a brisk pace. One question that was asked last summer that came out to regular attending people who go to church, they were asked, does God change? God's Word tells us in this Bible this basic truth that the triune God is both omniscient, meaning he knows all things, and immutable, meaning God cannot and does not change. Isaiah 46, verse 10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient time things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Or Malachi 3, verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Yet God's word, indicating God's omniscience and immutability, sadly, 51% of professing Christians believe that God both learns and adapts to different circumstances. Or why is it when professing Christians are asked, is the Bible different or the same as all sacred writings? Over 53% of professing Christians believe that the Bible is not literally true. Or thirdly, in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. And despite Jesus' words, over 56% of responders said that God is pleased and accepts the worship and religions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. We could go on about these questions plaguing the church on the nature of Christ, the definition of what marriage is, and so many more. And these questions reveal that in North America, 
there is an increasing rejection of the inspiration and authority of the Bible. Brings us back to the original question, why is there such a desire for God's people always to conform to the world around us? As we will see this morning in 1 Samuel 8, this is a question that has plagued God's people for centuries. God has called his people to be holy, to be set apart. God's people have been called out. This morning, as we look at 1 Samuel 8, we'll be looking at three main points. Number one, what motivated the desire of conformity to the nations around them? Number two, how did Samuel respond And number three, Samuel's warning against the king they wanted. As we open up chapter 8, most scholars calculate it's been about 30 years of peace and stability. The Philistines had been pushed from Ekron and Gath, as we've seen last week, and the areas around the cities that belonged to Israel. And as an added bonus, there had been peace with the Amorites. The Israelites lived in relative stability for many years. But imagine, you're an Israelite right now. Samuel is getting old. He's probably approaching about 60 years of age, and he can't do the work of judge anymore. And as you're residing in Israel, Samuel has made his two sons judges in Beersheba. Now this is about 50 or 60 miles away from Samuel and Rana. This might not seem too far from us, for us, being some of us have almost traveled that distance this morning. But it was a long ways, either by foot or on a donkey. And Samuel's two sons were named Joel and Abijah, and their names had meaning. The first one was, the Lord is God, and the second, my father is Lord. And in verse 1, it says that Samuel made his sons judges over Israel. Samuel, not too long ago, had witnessed what happened to Eli and his two wicked, worthless sons who did not know the Lord. Hophni and Phineas, they had done evil dealings, looking for selfish gain, sinning against the Lord, defiling the temple, and sadly, we see a repeated pattern in the lives of Samuel's two sons. They, as well, took bribes. They did not judge honestly or fairly. There is the added problem here, as well, as that it was Samuel who made his sons to be judges over Israel. This is not a pattern we have seen this far. It has always been the Lord in a continuous cycle that has raised up judges to bring his people back. In Judges 1, after the death of Joshua, Israel was unfaithful, serving the Baals, abandoning the Lord. The Lord sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies. And while in terrible distress and crying out to the Lord for deliverance, in Judges 2, verse 16, we said, Then the Lord raised up, a, raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. The Lord raised up a judge each time the people wandered from God's decrees. When a nation, the, and the nation would walk in faithfulness until the judge the Lord raised died. This cycle continued for generations Each time the people of Israel followed the gods of the surrounding nations by intermarriage or idol worship, the following idol worship, the Lord would raise up an enemy to subdue them. And then, as the people cried out to the Lord for help, God graciously raised up a judge. 
But again, looking at verse 1 of our passage, we see a different pattern. Samuel made his sons judges over Israel. As we see this, we realize that just because your father or your grandfather or maybe an uncle was a faithful leader, such as a deacon, an elder, or a pastor in a church, it gives no assurance whatsoever that the next generation will be upright, that the next generation will know having a head knowledge much about the Lord, but not know the Lord in an intimate relationship. One of dying to the passions and brides of this world, perverting justice. This should be a reminder to each one of us that each person, each generation must be born again, to be made alive by the Spirit, to have a heart transplant, God taking out a heart of stone and having the Holy Spirit put in a heart of flesh one that is tender to the gospel. This is not something that comes from your parents. Today, we have Luke and Mia coming forth with Barrett. It is such a reminder, as a congregation, as members of a local church, that there is nothing that changes in Barrett's life. We are simply pleading with the Lord to keep us accountable, to uphold them in prayer, to lift each other up in prayer before the Father, thanking the Lord for life, for God's sustaining mercy and praying that God would be pleased to work in Barrett's life and for his gracious hand of guidance in the Telford family. But going back to what motivated the desire to conformity with the other nations, going to verse 4, we see the elders of Israel gathered together and they come to Samuel. And they start out with Samuel, thanks for your faithful service. Last week, even, in chapter 7, we've seen how Samuel, interceding at the request of the people, cried to the Lord to save them from the Philistines. But now they say, your energy has vanished. You're getting old. And your sons, they do not walk in your ways. As a result of the situation, with always potential war from the Philistines or the Amorites, they think, appoint us a king like the other nations. Notice that it's the elders who come to Samuel. They were the heads of the families. There was no king in Israel. There were no kings in the towns and cities. A few weeks ago, we had the five kings of the Philistines send the ark of the Lord back to Israel. The Israelites had no cities with kings. Just imagine an ambassador comes from Egypt or one of the other surrounding nations to visit and asks, where is your king? Where is your army? Where is your capital city? Do you pay taxes? You see, Israel was different. No palace, no king, no army, no taxes. But they had God. Israel was a theocracy. The center of Israel's worship was the tabernacle. It was the place they had to meet God. God was worshipped there. He was honored there. He was praised there. There must have been many questions for the other surrounding nations. What? You don't have a king and your God. We can't see him. But the leaders come and they ask for a king like the nations. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17 for a moment. Here we have specific instructions from Moses to the people. Someday Moses knew the people would demand a king. And Moses gave specific instructions and qualifications for that future king. Deuteronomy 17, starting at verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, 
and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all Read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and do them. And that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, and he his children in Israel." See, there was nothing wrong with the request of a king, as Moses had prescribed it in the Pentateuch many years ago. But the elders came to, as the elders came to Samuel, they did not want a king as Moses had prescribed it. They wanted a king that would judge them like the other nations. If we jump ahead to verse 20, the people actually demand a king. And their motive comes out so clear. They wanted a king to settle disputes and fight their battles. Up to this point in Israel's history, the Lord had fought the battles for them. The Lord had given victory again and again. But the picture is much larger than this as we are looking at this narrative portion of 1 Samuel here. As Pastor Aaron noted last week, John Calvin said, the heart is an idol factory. Romans 1 comes to mind. Let's turn to Romans 1. And we'll start reading at verse 18. Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him honor Him as God or give to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them to dishonorable passions. 
For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves their due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We read this entire passage this morning because three times in Romans 1, God says he gave them up. And three times in our passage today, the Lord tells Samuel to obey the people's voice and give them a king. It is a very fearful thing to be walking in such a contrary way to the Lord, to his word, that the Lord hands over people to their sinful desires by simply removing his hand of mercy. Didn't we see this last fall in our study in Judges? Israel's embrace of idolatry time and time again invoked the Lord's discipline. Here we see that there was an outright rejection of the Lord as king of his people. God had shown his favor, his mercy, his protection, but the people rejected the Lord. In verse 8, God references Egypt, and this is significant. The picture of God bringing Israel out of Egypt is one of God redeeming from under the yoke of slavery and sin and to a transforming to a life of freedom out of the house of bondage. And here, the people are denying God's invisible attributes, his eternal power. They're forsaking the Lord, and they had a knowledge about God, but they did not truly know him. The elders, claiming to be wise by asking for a king to rule like the other nations, actually became fools by rationalizing their decisions to conformity to the world around them. Even for us in the 21st century, we still grapple with the same problems, don't we? As we started out this morning, the pleasure to conform to the world around us is immense. Is Christ enough for us to live obedient to his word? Is Christ enough to put to death the sinful patterns in our lives, as John Snyder challenged us last fall? It's hard to stand out trusting the Lord's sovereignty in all things, to trust his immutable world, word in a world that sometimes even professing Christians scoff as, as old-fashioned and out-of-date. R.C. Sproul said, the largest threat to the Christian church is the social justice movement, and it's true. It's taking over denominations by storm. Sometimes we're called bigoted or old-fashioned if we give biblical answers and that the, in so many areas that this world is trying to indoctrinate upon us. The question is, do we seek to operate under the shelter of God's immutable, infallible, inspired word, or do we seek to conform to the seductions 
in the comfort of the kingdoms of this world. What occupies our thoughts more each day? The sin that surrounds us so blatantly in our faces, or the provisions God has given us in Christ to love God in daily obedience. C.S. Lewis wrote, Human history is a long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Secondly, this morning we'll look at Samuel's response. When the elders of Israel approached Samuel, the thing displeased Samuel. At first glance, we might be tempted to think that possibly Samuel was displeased because he and his sons were being rejected as judges. It's easy for us to think, take things personally, isn't it? Either as men in leadership in our families, or leadership in the church, or various places God has called us to serve. How do we respond when we are rejected, or if we are challenged in decisions made? We take it personally, don't we? But remember Samuel, back when he was a little boy, in chapter 3. The Lord calls Samuel, and Samuel's response is so beautiful. He says, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Here again we see Samuel. He is not focused upon himself in despair, but he has a different attitude. Samuel goes directly to the Lord in prayer as a humble servant, hearing what the Lord has to say about this matter. As we think about this, we see that Samuel recognizes that prayer is a gift by God to his people. That prayer is simply recognizing and acknowledging that our trust is in God's will alone. It is asking God to align our will with his. Samuel was unable to do the job of leadership unless God was with him. A few mornings ago, in the Truth for Life devotional by Alistair Begg, he penned, As Christians called to live in a God-centered focus, we must not ascribe too much attention to ourselves or our abilities, for in doing so, we may well obscure God's grace and power in our lives. In Christ, we ought not to boast in our abilities or seek any opportunity to draw attention to ourselves. Instead, we should merely wish to be known as servants of the living God, to be useful in His service as He works in us to accomplish His good purpose, and to, appoint, and to point away from ourselves and to Him in all that we do and say. May we be people who pray much, May we be people who spend much time in prayer. We see repeatedly in the Gospels that Christ spent much time in prayer with his Father while on earth, in sweet communion with his Father. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who was once asked, what is more, imp- what is more important, reading God's word or spending time in prayer? And he simply answered, what is more important, breathing in or breathing out? And thirdly, briefly this morning, we'll look at Samuel's warning against the king. Samuel comes to the people who are asking for a king, and he gives warnings. Samuel directly informs what the king will be like, what this king will take, and this king will be nothing like the king that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 17. But this king will do exactly what Deuteronomy 17 warns of. He will take, and he will take, And he will take some more. Samuel says in verse 11, he will take your sons. In verse 13, he will take your daughters. And in verse 14, he will take your fields and your vineyards. And in verse 16, he will take your servants and your livestock. 
Samuel says, this king's appetite will never be satisfied. Of course, if we continue to look down the horizon through the book of Samuel and kings, we realize that this occurs very soon. Saul had meant to fight. David had a standing army. And Solomon was in need of so many resources to keep his kingdom going that when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes to take over the throne in 1 Kings 12, the people are gathered at Shechem and they ask for a lighter load of service. Rehoboam says to the people, My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. There's only a few generations between Samuel and Rehoboam's folly. And in verse 17, Samuel ends and you shall be his slaves. What a picture, returning to the bondage of Egypt. And in that day, you will cry out, Samuel says, because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. In the days of the judges, or even not too long ago, in Samuel 1, Hannah prayed for a son, and God graciously answered her request. In the days of the judges, the people would cry out, and the Lord will raise raised up a judge. But this time, Samuel saying, the Lord will not answer you. One would think, after Samuel spoke to the people, that there would be a change of heart. But they refused and said, no, there shall be a king over us, that we might be like the other nations, that our king may fight our battles. The request, as we stated earlier, went from asking to demanding a king. So where does this leave us today as we're going through the narrative of of Samuel? It never dawned on the people of Israel that leaders are like people. They never thought that they should get on their knees and pray and repent. At the beginning of the chapter, we had Samuel's two sons. They were corrupt. Did the people actually think that Samuel's two sons were the only two corrupt people of the entire nation. As the people are demanding a king, it never crosses their mind that actually the problem is them. Leaders always reflect the people then and now. And instead of coming to God and repenting, the people come and say, we want to change God. We think our idea is better than your idea of living under your guidance. We want to conform to the nations around us. This sure hits close to home, doesn't it? It brings up the question, who is the king of my life? Who is the king of your life? And what do we do when life is not going well? When there are struggles, do we start looking for a different king? A way of doing things that are different than God has prescribed us in his word? For those who confess Christ as Lord... Your desire will be obedience, not perfectly, but a desire to live for Christ. It should be one of abiding in Christ, to walk in the same way as which Christ walked. Do we have a sweetness that we enjoy, that we love being in the presence of Christ? Do we long to be there someday? A song I had to think of this past week often was Take My Life and Let It Be. I'm just going to read through the words of the verses. It's take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move 
at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let me be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour, at thy feet its treasures store. Take myself, and I will be only all for thee, ever only all for thee. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, just thank you that we can come to you in prayer, that you've given us your prayer. And as we look at 1 Samuel 8 this morning and see the people demanding a king, we just look at your word, Lord, and it just stands to us in a mirror and it begs the question, who is, who is the king for our lives? What are we living for in this world, Lord? And we confess so often we get caught up in things of this world and Lord, help us to look to Christ. Help us to look to uh, what Christ accomplished upon Calvary for the forgiveness of our sins, taking the wrath that was due upon us, Lord, and, and to live joyfully. Lord, may we daily, Lord, crucify ourselves, our sin nature, Lord, that still is there struggling within us and joyfully flee to you and joyfully live our lives in obedience to you. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you that... It points us to Christ's redeeming work. All this we ask for me. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www. Dot redeeminggracechurch.ca and we pray that the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace <laughs>